everyone, and welcome back to Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio, the podcast that covers the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories of technology and science in the ocean. I'm Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm Samantha Wishnack. Today we're talking about coral, and more specifically, coral reefs. These ecosystems are rich in biodiversity, they provide food, jobs, and protection to billions of ocean animals, and to people around the world. But this incredibly important organism is struggling in the face of increased carbon, pollution, and ocean warming. Is there anything to be done to help our tiny friends? To find out, we spoke to some of the leading experts in the field and made a few house calls. I went to visit the California Academy of Science, one of my favorite green roof places in the world. My name is Rebecca Albright, and I'm an assistant curator of uh, invertebrate zoology and geology at the California Academy of Sciences. Rebecca studies coral biology and reproduction. She is co-leader of the Academy's Coral Reef Initiative. I spoke with her about coral, and she let me into their tiny world. Coral looks like it's just a rock, but it's actually an animal. So they are animals that are related to jellyfish and sea anemones, and they are part rock, part animal, part plant. So they have a calcium carbonate skeleton that they secrete underneath their tissue, just like we have bones inside of our body. And so that rock, that calcium carbonate rock, is covered with this thin veneer of animal tissue that's very much alive. And inside of that tissue is a symbiotic algae called zooxanthellae that will photosynthesize and provide the coral animal with food. All right, so coral build up this rocky structure, but Rebecca, is coral actually important? Coral's amazingly important, um, but what a lot of people don't understand is that there are hundreds of millions of people around the world that their primary source of livelihood is coral reefs. So around 500 million people around the world depend on reefs for survival. Reef fish are their primary source of protein. And according to a few different studies, coral reefs provide an estimated $375 billion per year in goods and services. But it's more than just economics. The coral reefs themselves are incredibly valuable for the survival of coastal communities around the world. The reefs themselves, that actual huge three-dimensional structure that rises up from the ocean floor, mitigates wave energy. And so if you're Pacific Island in the middle of nowhere and there's a typhoon or a cyclone headed towards you, it'll hit the reef before it hits your shore. Reefs actually mitigate over 95% of wave energy, which is huge. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of damage prevention huge. These living, thriving coral reefs actually act as a natural force field against these forces of nature. For these self-sustaining, tsunami-deflating, growing ocean farms to work, the conditions need to be just right. One of the things that you often notice when you see pictures of corals or reefs is that the water's crystal clear and you can see for hundreds of feet and there's not a whole lot of stuff in the water column. And what that means is that it's very oligotrophic, which means there's not a lot of nutrients or food in that water column for the corals to eat. So in order for corals to get food and actually survive, they have this algae that lives inside their tissue that photosynthesizes for them and can provide them up to 90% of their energy supply. Let's bring in another expert. Here's Marvi. 
My name is Madhavi Colton, and I'm the Program Director at the Coral Reef Alliance. Madhavi oversees an international portfolio of community-driven conservation programs that are addressing local threats to reefs, and is also spearheading new scientific research into how these ecosystems adapt. As Madhavi can tell you, the clarity of the water is not the only issue that our tiny friends need to deal with. Overall, coral are very fragile. They are quite sensitive to things like temperature. So as we are heating up our world through emissions of various gases that we use, that climate change is having a really big and negative impact on coral reefs. When the waters around coral reefs get too warm for too long, corals end up expelling those algae that live in their tissues, and they start to starve. And if that event goes on for long enough, the corals start to die. And so it's things like that that are leading to dramatic declines in coral reef health around the world. When you add on top of that a bunch of pollution from land sources like sediment, like poorly treated wastewater, like nutrients, like pesticides, and you take out all the fish that help keep coral reefs clean, it starts to look really bad for reefs. Okay, so we know that coral are pretty fragile, but Madhavi, how bad is it, really? It's pretty bad. I'll start with the bad news. It's, it's pretty bad. So coral reefs around the world are disappearing. There's one estimate that says that 27% of the world's coral reefs have already been lost. We're seeing dramatic declines in coral cover around the world. Some of the places we work, we've lost 50% of the corals in the last few decades. We've had the longest and most significant global bleaching event we've ever seen over these past few years. A report just came out that said even when the um, ocean conditions are cooler, those cool conditions are warmer than warm conditions used to be. So the whole thing has shifted. Rebecca Albright's work with the Cal Academy drills down into the specifics of how the changing oceans affect the future of coral. So I study impacts of climate change and ocean acidification on coral reefs and largely understanding how ocean acidification and changes in our climate are going to impact various aspects of reef processes from coral fertilization and sexual reproduction to metabolic processes like understanding actual calcification and photosynthesis and the actual kind of metabolic pulse of a reef up to trying to understand how it influences biodiversity. So it's no surprise that we're kind of in a time of a lot of change right now, particularly for reefs, and so trying to understand how that's going to play out and what the future of reefs is going to look like is a large focal point of what I do. Ocean acidification, as we have covered in previous episodes, can be thought of as osteoporosis of the sea. Oceans cover roughly 70% of the planet, but are absorbing roughly 30% of all carbon dioxide that we're emitting into the atmosphere. That absorbed CO2 takes the form of carbonic acid, and this decreases the pH and increases the acidity of the ocean. It has been estimated that over the last 100 years, the acidity of the ocean has increased about 30%, which is huge. Here is Rebecca's take on it. If the pH of your blood were to increase in acidity by 30%, it would have severe health consequences for you, including the possibility of a coma or death. So this is what's happening in the oceans, and it's affecting basically everything that's living in the oceans. As if the change in pH wasn't enough for coral to deal with, the global temperature of the Earth has increased by about 1 degree Celsius over the last 100 years. I know some of you out there might be thinking to yourself, well, 1 degree Celsius doesn't sound like a lot. Let's let Rebecca frame it in another way. 
If your temperature went up by one degree Celsius and you got this huge fever and then you weren't able to eat for weeks at a time, you can imagine what that might do to your immune system and to your ability to fight off diseases and resist other stressors. As Madhvi mentioned earlier, when coral gets stressed, they release their symbiotic algae, their zoosantheli, into the water. Without this algae, the typical brown or yellow tones of coral disappear, revealing stark white calcium carbonate. Hence the name coral bleaching. Literally, you can go to these coral reefs that were once vibrant and colorful, full of life, and after a bleaching event, they look like boneyards. Bleaching events aren't a death sentence for coral, if the conditions of the area that stress out the coral can return to normal, or if the coral can adapt. Then they'll actually be able to recollect or reattract their algae buddies, returning to full life. On the other hand, like someone starved and dehydrated, Bleach coral are more susceptible to disease, damage, and death. Way to be a bummer, Andrew. Well, there are a few interesting possible solutions, like the sci-fi sounding concept of super coral. Wait, super coral? Rebecca? The concept or idea of super corals are that we could breed corals that are stress tolerant or stress resistant. And there's several different ways that you could do this. There are species that are more resistant to stress. There are genotypes or individuals that are more resistant to stress. To stress, You can manipulate a coral by inoculating it with certain microbes or certain types of algae to make it resist stress more. It's this concept of either selectively breeding like they do in agriculture or with domestic cats and dogs, selectively breeding for certain traits or actually manipulating a coral to increase stress tolerance. The problem with super coral is that we aren't quite sure what the longer term effects may be of messing with the genetics of coral and selectively mutating them, which sounds a little Frankenstein-y. Most marine biologists feel that this is not an ideal solution and that natural breeding and evolution should lead the way. Some of the research that I'm leading is what keeps me optimistic. So I have been working with a group of researchers to try and figure out what the probability is that corals can adapt to rising temperatures by the year 2100. Madhavi and her team and partners at the Coral Reef Alliance have been working to, as she puts it, add evolution back into the equation. The results we're finding is that corals actually can adapt to rising temperatures, that they have already done so, and that their capacity to continue to do so is actually quite good if we reduce local stress. By combating local stressors and trying to facilitate these evolutionary changes, the team believes that they can help coral naturally adapt. Again, to manage expectations here... Bringing us down again. As I was saying, one issue with natural coral spawning and evolution is that the ocean temperatures and pH are in such a weird way right now that it has their spawning times out of whack. And, add to that fact, that different species of coral have bleached and died out to the point where there is little crossbreeding actually happening. Coral restoration in general right now is heavily reliant on asexual reproduction, which will build up a lot of coral biomass, but it's all genetically the same thing. And in a time where the environment's changing so quickly, what you need is genetic diversity in order for natural selection to act on. And so if we can incorporate sexual reproduction more into these restoration practices, then we're actually expanding the genetic pool so that things can actually um, have a better chance of survival. I had the chance to visit the Florida Aquarium's Apollo Beach Greenhouse and spoke with their curator who's working on just that. A greenhouse for coral? Yup.
basically we are going to have several greenhouses, hopefully eight in total, and basically they're going to be archived greenhouses. We are actually going to take corals and we sample the corals out in a while for their individual um, genetic makeup, so they're all individual genetic composition is recorded. It's going to be brought back into the land site where they can grow and hopefully grow to maturity and spawn. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's that? John Tan, who you just heard, is the site manager for the Center for Conservation for the Florida Aquarium. There they have what's known as the Coral Arc, a joint project with NOAA, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. So what does a coral arc do with coral? You house them as an archive. So if there was a natural disaster in the wild or a unnatural disaster like an oil spill or whatever, we can actually put the corals back out when the conditions are right for that. So it's a big undertaking right now. We're hoping to take on more species, but currently we're working with Acropora silvercurrency. And what's the common name on that guy? Staghorn coral. Staghorn, okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's one of the endangered corals, and it's one of the big reef builders. And it's also one of the hardest ones to um, propagate because they're so little out there now that when they spawn in the wild, they don't think the eggs and the sperms are cross-fertilizing because they're so far apart and it's a big ocean. So, so hopefully we can solve that by growing it here or we actually go down and do coral spawn too and we um, bring corals together to get them to fertilize. Jonathan's organization is one of the groups that's trying to not only breed coral, but figure out how to propagate them so they can actually survive in the wild. It's no good if you keep growing corals and putting it back. If they keep dying where you put them, it's not good. So we need to get our scientists, we work with the University of Florida and a couple of other institutions to try to figure this out. You know? So we take biologists out into the field, we look at it uh, ecologically, we do surveys, we do have histories on coral owl planting with one of our partners, the Coral Restoration Foundation. We can actually take their knowledge, see where it's successful, where it's not, even actually look at the genetics so, hey, this coral is doing better. Why is it doing better? Does it have some kind of resilience in it that makes it a stronger coral for whatever reason? And then maybe we can start breeding those corals together to make a better coral. Not to say that that will work because sometimes two good things doesn't make a, a better thing. You know, sometimes two bad things make a really good thing like a mutt. So you can't just go on that theory, but it, it is a good idea and we can try to experiment and if it works, then we can go with that direction. The facility is huge with multiple different tanks and rooms that are put in the ideal conditions for coral to thrive. So the things corals need is flow, lighting, and clean water. So I'm getting my flow through the air lip tubes. The higher I put this um, piece of sheet of plastic, the quicker the water is. So when the corals start to, when they're, when they're small. The coral will continue to grow with the facility's caretakers adjusting the flow of air and water and the size of the coral's container until they are of the ideal size for hanging. And then for about two or three months after another round of growing, these coral then get moved to a completely different greenhouse with different conditions. Watch out listeners, this gets a little noisy. When they grow on a line, they grow kind of like a in a ball shape. This is this was frag, and when it was hanging, it just grew two directions. So depending on where you frag it and, and, and tie it to, depends on how coral grows. And frag it. is just breaking it, it off. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. When they grow on a line, they grow kind of like a in a ball shape. This is this was frag, and when it was hanging, it just grew two directions. So depending on where you frag it and, and, and tie it to, depends on how coral grows. And frag is just breaking it off. Breaking it off. Okay. <laughs> the facility collects coral samples from the wild, breaks them apart, and hangs them up and just lets them grow. 
In about a year with these perfect conditions, you can get a two inch piece of coral to become about a six inch piece of coral. And when these corals are mature enough, they get taken into a facility to spawn. It happens once a year. It's usually three or four days after the last full moon of the summer. They release their eggs, or they release bundles. And this is what the bundles look like right here. And you can see, and so each one has eggs and sperm of that one genet. So then you have to separate the egg and sperm and then find another genet, do the same thing, and then cross fertilize it. The setup they have is pretty amazing. Controlling for pH, air, light, clarity of the water, and a pretty interesting temperature control system. What's um, this filtration system? It's not a filtration oh. system. Get up to it and you'll see what it is. Oh. Can it's, you feel it? It's cooling. Yeah, it's a cooling mat. Because we're in a greenhouse, the sunlight really adds a lot of heat. When you have the fans going, it'll blow the heat out, but if you put a cooling mat like this in front of it, it'll actually drop the temperature about five degrees. There are a few facilities similar to the Florida Aquarium's coral arc, but growing coral is only part of the solution. We're very good now at growing corals, we're very good at propagating them, but at the end of the day, what has to happen is every single coral that you want to plant back out onto a reef has to be physically taken out by a diver and then epoxied or cemented onto the reef. And that's a very labor and time consuming process. We're trying to understand ways that we might be able to scale this by using technology, by doing things autonomously, and, and see if there are ways that we can kind of get away from restoring reefs at a hectare scale to restoring them at an ecologically meaningful scale, like ecosystems. Imagine a team of divers, each cementing about 20 of these tiles to a reef. The time, effort, and money involved in a project like this becomes prohibitive and, in the long run, possibly not worth it. Rebecca and her team have been advising and helping another interesting group called CCOR for an interesting solution to this issue. So CCOR stands for Sexual Coral Reproduction, and they are a restoration um, organization that focuses specifically on sexually derived corals. Um, and so one of the ways that, that we're helping them try to think about how to scale restoration is through an idea similar to farmers that might go out and scatter seeds over a field. Um, and so what we've done is help them think about ways that you could design a, a substrate. Um, so you take a coral larvae, larva, and you settle it onto a substrate. And instead of that substrate being like a two-dimensional tile that you then have to glue onto the reef, what we've done is think about three-dimensional things that actually look like really large jacks that we call tetrapods that are pronged. And so you can throw them in the water and, and, and they will actually kind of... Uh, like fix themselves into the reef structure. And they've done studies to show that over the course of about six months, they, they move less than 40, 50 centimeters. So instead of this labor-intensive process of individually cementing tiles that have been impregnated with coral larvae, now vast areas can be seeded. If you throw a remote-controlled vehicle into the mix, that process can scale to a huge project of settling thousands or millions of coral. Though, for now, all of that is purely hypothetical. In the end, genetically engineering super coral, or creating drone planters, or 3D printing coral reefs won't be an end-all solution. It's going to take action by every single one of us. If you have every person on Earth understand one thing about coral, what would it be? And what I would want everybody to understand, it's kind of a two-part answer to that question, but one is that their actions do matter. 
And the other is that no one's going to fix this for us. We all have to do it together. So whether you choose to lower your carbon footprint, use less plastic that winds up in the ocean, be more sustainable, eat less meat so that there's fewer carbon emissions in the atmosphere, all those things, because there's 7.5 billion people, almost 7.6 now, billion people on Earth, every single one of us has to pitch in on this. And sometimes it takes a bit of faith. Madhavi? I do have a lot of faith in coral's natural ability to adapt. And I have a lot of faith in the communities that interact with corals on a day-to-day basis who are really motivated to make changes to protect these ecosystems for themselves, their children, and their grandchildren. And on that optimistic note, a big thanks to our guests for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to join us next time for an all-new episode of Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. Radio. Had to add in zozantheli because it's my favorite word ever. Zozantheli, zozantheli, zozantheli. Super coral and zozantheli Avengers. All right, idea for a B movie. A lab is creating a super coral that evolves into a giant conscious colony and takes over the world, destroying humanity. <laughs> <laughs>